Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole bennett Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Because we can never get enough of her, we are doing a special bonus episode this week with our favorite Dr. Lisa Damore. And her new book is The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. We talked earlier in the week about some of the bigger picture topics and strategies that she presents to both parents and teenagers about what it looks like to identify the feelings that they're having and then how to manage those feelings and how to recognize that the existence of those feelings is actually a really good and healthy thing and not always a scary thing. But in this episode, we're going to dive deep into a couple of specific topics that Lisa deals with all the time. And they are the topics that lots of adults read about and hear about and worry about, specifically things like drugs and alcohol and trauma and sort of the big ticket items that are the scarier big ticket items. But what we're going to do is we're going to pick Lisa's brilliant brain in order to understand how to both assess the kids in our lives better and how to communicate better with the kids in our lives. So Lisa, I think where I'd like to start this conversation is with a concept that you talk about with respect to drugs and alcohol, halting maturation. 
And I was hoping you could explain a little bit about this concept and then we'll get into how then we use that information to have conversations with our kids. Mm, Thank you. And thank you for having me back. This is such a special week. The book's out. I get to be with you twice. Thank you guys. (laughs) Okay. So I tell this story in the book and it really was such a powerful moment in my own training where I was in my postdoctoral fellowship. I was taking care of a 30-year-old client who had been assigned to me and she was having a huge number of crises in her adult life. And she, she was also drinking a lot, like a lot. And I took the intake session notes to my supervisor and I was going over the notes, which is, you know, how we do our training. And he said, in the second session, you need to find out how old she was when she started drinking that much because people stop maturing at the age when they start to abuse substances. And I was like, what? I mean, I I really kind of struck me because humans are so complicated. Like very rarely can you make these sweeping comments, you know, and and have them be accurate. But this was a really good and seasoned supervisor. And I, I wasn't sure at first that I really believed that. And I've come to really see the wisdom of it. And the thinking being, when we go through painful things and we go through them, we learn and grow, right? So if a kid plagiarizes and gets caught, and is in trouble with the school and is in trouble at home and has questions about what's going to go on their record to follow them, they're going to feel wildly uncomfortable through that, as they should. And it's that wild discomfort that's going to help them hopefully resolve to never do anything like that again, think about the kind of person they want to be, you know, get themselves back on track. And I've often seen some of the most growth in kids happen when they're pivoting out of a horrible event because there's so much reflection and so much discomfort. If a kid gets themselves into a spot like that and just smokes weed till it's over, you know, just like gets themselves through it by being high the whole time, they will get through it. But the chances that they're going to do something again that is dumb like that, the chances that they are going to, you know, really learn and grow from that experience really are are very low. And so it's not occasionally smoking weed that's going to halt maturation. Not that I'm a fan of that. It is the reliance on substances to manage distress can really become a problem in terms of helping a person grow up. And part of why that's important from the therapeutic standpoint is You might be looking at a 30-year-old sitting in the chair across from you, but if she has been drinking like this since she was 16, it's actually important to treat her clinically with an understanding that she may be operating with the apparatus of a 16-year-old in terms of emotion management and maturation. So that piece is important. And so in terms of talking with kids about it, there's a lot of reasons we want them to steer clear of substances. But one of them, and you can use adult examples for this, you don't even have to point to their peers, is to say, look, the other thing is substances are really, really good at making painful feelings go away. And sometimes we really need to be having those painful feelings. So I don't want you to miss out on all the learning that could come from times when you are in distress. I mean, it's a little bit hard to convince a kid of that. Like we know it as adults and we can explain to them all the reasons why they shouldn't do X, Y, or Z, or why it's important that they experience this hard thing or that hard thing. I don't know if they'll always buy it. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know how, but it kind of, it, well, Cara's like, I'm totally going to explain to them all of this. And that's fine. No, I mean, you can do that, but I'm skeptical. 
when we teach them about their brain maturation and the path through brain maturation, they feel empowered and emboldened to understand why they make bad decisions. Yes. And the notion of pointing to someone, and it could be someone you know, it could be someone in your family, and it could be someone on a streamer that is that character that is the Mm -hmm. recovered whatever, whose maturation is clearly stunted, right? That is fine too. It doesn't have to be someone who is living and breathing and you know, but I do think it's a, a very empowering move for some huge chunk of kids, maybe not all kids, but some huge chunk of kids who go, you know what? I actually don't think I want to use drugs to blunt my pain. And by the way, they know when they're doing that, right? And this is the thing that's hard for us as adults to wrap our brain around. I want to use drugs or alcohol to have fun, but not to blunt our pain. And that's a complicated conversation with kids, but I think it's totally appropriate for us to educate them about what happens when they use substances to blunt versus to enhance, if you will. Um, And that's going to look very and sound very different in all different homes. The conversation gets really muddy when we talk about treating psychiatric illnesses with prescribed drugs, because I can imagine a large number of kids, there's much more medication that happens today than ever happened when we were growing up, mostly for very, very good reasons. But Lisa, how does that factor in? Mm-hmm. And you know, how do we talk about using prescription drugs appropriately prescribed for the kid as not blunting, but helping to scaffold? Mm. Right, because kids will be sometimes say like, look, I self-medicate with weed. How is that different from self-medicating right. with, right? And I am in agreement with you that, you know, we are medicating a lot more kids than we used to. I'm also in agreement that often it is thoughtfully done and a you know key to development and keeps kids on track and that is what i want to see what we also know about psychiatric medications and i'm not a psychiatrist is they don't take away your feelings they don't actually make you numb to emotion they get your feelings into a band where you can operate right so if you're hugely anxious they take it down a little bit so you can use that anxiety in a useful way but they don't make you you know relaxed all the time like the drugs that we have that we can do that with you can't take them all the time. Like we don't prescribe those. And for the antidepressants, what they do is they put in a floor about how depressed a person can become so that they don't find themselves in bed for three weeks. They still get plenty sad. They still feel a lot of emotional pain, but they are not, um, as we would say, sort of bottoming out in a way that means that they cannot function. So making that distinction, the, you know, drugs and alcohol, their job is to basically make you, it's like Novocaine versus and aspirin, right? I mean, those are two, like, I don't know that that really holds up as a metaphor, but like, that's a way to think about it. And so another way to consider it is when we use psychiatric medications, it's so that people can actually make good sense of their emotions and make good use of them. When people are using substances to manage distress, it's to make the emotions go away. And I agree with you, Kara, right? I'm sure lots of people in their families could point to uncle so or so-and-so and say like, you know why he always makes the same mistakes over and over again? Because he doesn't learn. And the reason he doesn't learn is when he's upset about what's happened, he makes the feeling go away. I think kids can be open to that. And I think another way to enter that conversation is to, you know, so often with teenagers, we're talking about perfectionism, right? Mm-hmm. The other side of this. And so when I'm talking with teenagers about perfectionism, and I care for a lot of adolescent girls where that is, you know, a very powerful yeah. part of their lives, I'll say, look, 
my goal in life is just to try to not to make the same mistake twice. I make mistakes every day and I make mistakes every day because I'm doing work that is new and hard. I'm not going to get it right. My only standard for myself is to not make the same mistake twice if I can help it. And the way that that works is I feel very uncomfortable when I make mistakes. And so I usually tend not to repeat them. That's another way we can talk about it. The little mini trauma. Before we move on to the next hard subject, I just want to say, yes, your analogy does hold up. Okay. And the neuroscience way that I would frame it, and it's not particularly sophisticated, but when people, any people of any age are being treated for psychiatric illnesses, largely the way they're being treated is they're the neurotransmitters that are lacking are being replaced or the neurotransmitters that are overrepresented are being sort of reined in and pulled back. So it is the goal of treatment with medication for psych patients is to get back to a balanced neurotransmitter state in the brain that is very different from recreational use of drugs or use of drugs and alcohol to blunt responses. So I think it totally holds up for that reason. Vanessa, let's move on to the next hard topic. You spend a bunch of time in the book talking about gender mm. and you do it in a few different ways. And we, for our book, the gender identity chapter was probably the hardest, if not one of the hardest chapters to write because it is such an evolving, rapidly evolving subject with rapidly evolving terminology. And it's like every, I feel like every other sentence needs to be, as of the writing of this book, the word we use is X. Mm -hmm. But you get at gender in a few different ways. One is how boys and girls or adolescent females and males respond to different kinds of situations and kind of what we can generalize about them. And then separately, you talk about the risks and how to love and support kids who are gender expansive. And those are really like, those could each be their own books. Can you talk a little bit about the general things that you notice in terms of how adolescent females versus adolescent males deal with, let's say, like a really tough, complicated emotional situation? This was really hard to write. It's chapter two in my book. I spent a lot of time thinking through how to frame it. And I hope it, you know, holds up. Like you said, that you're writing in the midst of something that's changing all around you. And of course, the way we talk and think about gender has changed a lot in the last, I don't know, five years. I think what I tried to hold simultaneously is that doesn't actually erase very true and real broad strokes about what it means to be male and female in this society and the ways in which we socialize kids and the impact on their emotional lives. And so um, I tried to cover it all. A short way to get at the gendered stereotypes that are often true about emotion is that girls discuss and boys distract. That when a girl is upset, we teach her in our culture to talk about it to you know, seek someone out to share what she's thinking, to get those feelings on the table into a conversation. And boys are taught explicitly or not that when they are distressed, they should try to figure out something else to think about until the feeling dies down. And um, obviously there's a million exceptions to this, but we do see this pattern pretty consistently when we look at broad groups. And the bottom line is neither discussing nor distracting is a terrible thing. The only problem arrives when you do it constantly and it's your main repertoire. 
What we want to see is that those are two options that are part of a very broad repertoire for managing emotions. It's the extremes where we can see things becoming problematic. If you listen to enough of our episodes, you'll hear us preach the importance of air, particularly down there. Airing out body parts reduces sweatiness, stinkiness, and skin irritation. And it feels amazing to air it all out after a long day in tight, sweaty clothes. Which is why we created the Oom Short. Super soft, lightweight, with wide legs and a low crotch. All help air flow. Designed for all genders in all sizes, literally down to kids' extra small and up to men's extra large. Everyone who wears them tells us they've never been so comfy. Get your shorts at myoomla.com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factors Ready to Eat Meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our Factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. (laughs) And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10. 
at bioptimizers.com slash puberty, your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. Go into a little bit about internalizing versus externalizing because mm. that I find really fascinating. And like within my own home, I see those distinctions. So can you talk about how there's often gender stereotypes about how kids look at problems and whether they internalize or externalize it? The way I use internalizing and externalizing in the book is to describe categories of diagnoses, which is different from conversations about discussion versus distraction. So in the categories of diagnoses, one of the great and consistent findings in adolescent psychopathology, as we call it, is that girls are much more likely to be diagnosed with internalizing disorders. Boys are much more likely to be diagnosed with externalizing disorders. So internalizing disorders are basically disorders where girls collapse in on themselves. They become anxious. They become depressed. Externalizing disorders are disorders where there's an acting out, right? Delinquency, getting themselves in trouble, you know, being hard on other people. And the way we think about it clinically is it all starts from distress, right? The kids are in distress, but the culture has taught them which path they are supposed to go down with that distress. The culture has taught girls do not start fights. Do not tell people to F off. Like it will not go well for you. And the culture has taught boys, do not cry. Do not tell us you are scared and anxious. It will not go well for you. And so they express severe emotion in these um, very sort of gendered ways of girls becoming anxious and depressed, boys getting themselves in trouble. And I tell the story where I saw this so vividly, it was so painful. So there was a point in my training where I was able to work at an inpatient unit and I was there 40 hours a week. I was a staff member. I wasn't working really as a clinician. I was very young in my training. It was mid-grad school, but um, I didn't really have the chops to do the kind of therapeutic work that was needed there at that time. But I was just daytime staff and I was in charge of a pack of 12-year-old boys. Like they were my charge all day long. I was like their daytime parent. And we had some like eight to 10 of them on the unit. And what would happen is we would get visits from their parents. Often these guys were on the unit because life at home was really rough in a million ways. And the visits from the parents were often not great to sum up. 
And before their parents would come, you would see them being so full of hope and anticipation that maybe this time it would be good or gentle or kind or sweet in a different way than it usually was. And usually the visits were kind of a disaster and like we had to allow them, but they didn't go well. And the boys, like I would see them come out of these visits and I know they were sad. Like I know they were deeply sad, but almost inevitably the form it took is like they would go pick a fight, right? Like Mm -hmm. we were just, we were just braced when these parents left, the family left Mm -hmm. to keep fights from happening on the unit because we knew like, this is the pathway they've been taught. Like you're in a whole bunch of pain, then everyone around you is going to be in a whole bunch of pain. And so that piece, like we see it in the culture and we see it like, you know, you can statistically, you can see this, like who's committing all the crime. I mean, like you see this, like, and it's just, it's a real issue in terms of what we allow in terms of men being able to express distress. It's such a lesson about when your kid is being such a jerk yeah. to their sibling or to you or to a friend to like get underneath the hood of what's going on because yeah. they don't want to be that way. They don't want to be cruel or unkind, but it's like they can't find a way out of it. And we layer on the sort of concept of gender fluidity and understanding what it might feel like to be a teenager who is either gender questioning or gender expansive or transgender and going from one set of sort of socialized expectations to another? hmm hmm Well, it's interesting. I think that gender expansive kids are having to sort out so, so, so much. And, you know, part of what we're thinking about is like, what does the culture allow and not allow based on your gender? And I think there are giant questions in the culture right now in terms of what does the culture allow and not allow if you're gender questioning, right? So I think kids come like right up against those questions. And I think... This is as complicated and difficult a topic as I've encountered as a clinician working in this field for a while now. And my attitude towards it is to be extremely humble, right? That you never know how things are going to play out. You never can see. There's no crystal ball that tells you where everything is headed. But we do have tools as clinicians to try to be of most use. So to the degree that a child with gender questioning or gender expansive identity is, you know, in a family or say in my office, right? As sometimes happens. What I find to be most useful is to fall back on my training. And I think parents can fall back on their, you know, on this too, which is we cannot know what the right path for that child will be. But what we can know is that Maintaining a good working relationship with loving adults is going to be the thing that child needs more than anything else because it is what all teenagers need more than anything else. And so the decision making, I think, should be driven by what is it that that child needs that's going to keep them in good working relationship with the adults around them and preserve their mental health, however this unfolds over time. Yeah, I think you use the phrase something like let the kids drive the bus or something like that. I don't know if I'm conflating you know, no, the, no, I the say book like about kid, the pigeon. <laughs> you might be. Your kid is driving the gender car. You're in the passenger seat. Yes, that's yeah. what it is. Right. And, and so it's like... You can't tell them where to go. Who mm-hmm. cares? Like, if they want you to call them by this pronoun or this name this week, fine. Like, then that's what they want. Because I love that you use the phrase working relationship. It's such mm-hmm. an interesting... I've never heard anyone use that about a, like a parent-child 
relationship, but it is a working relationship, right? We're like constantly working with each other and Mm -hmm. you have to just like respect and hear them. Even if you do not understand what is going on, if they ask you to call them something, then you call them something until Mm -hmm. they give you a different set of instructions. In the context of this particular conversation, it just makes us all realize that layered on top of all the other things that these kids and their families are managing is a set of social expectations that goes along with gender. And so as the gender becomes more fluid or as someone transitions their gender, you know, there's this very heavy lift in managing all of these social expectations that go along with the gender with which one identifies. And so it's just, it's complicated. It's it's an extra layer of the onion that I don't think a lot of people unpeel and you unpeel quite beautifully, Lisa. Oh, thank you. I should just add that it's not... <laughs> Lisa's point and a lot of people's point, it's based in serious research, which is that the mental health of gender questioning kids is greatly improved when people respect their requests to be called by their pronouns and by the names. It's not just like, oh, let them be in charge. We know specifically that those acts of respect and listening do greatly improve the mental health of kids when when adults in their lives actually respond and and answer the call. Can we end on one other part? This is another huge topic we could spend an hour on and um, we're only going to be able to spend a couple of minutes. But another very big issue that you touch on many, many times through your book is the issue of racial differences across mental health issues. And in particular, the risks that Black kids face in terms of suicidality. And you tether it to a number of things and use a lot of really great data. But one of the things you talk about is the adultification of Black Mm -hmm. children and how that is very clearly connected with the mental health implications for these kids. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about what adultification looks like it means and share any pearls on this topic with us? Sure. So... When we say the adultification of Black teenagers, what we mean is there is an enormous body of research showing that Black adolescents are seen as older than they are, and that there actually is a real gender split in terms of how that plays out, which is that Black boys are seen as more dangerous or threatening, and Black girls are seen as more sexualized. And we see this repeatedly. I am not aware of any data where that specifically is tied to higher rates of suicidality, but it certainly is tied to... Yeah, I conflated like 12 chapters. So I just want to be really clear. Like, (laughs) I don't know that those two things are linked, but I do know, like we do know, right, from the research of like how unbelievably taxing and harrowing and sometimes like lethally dangerous this is for Black adolescents and what it means for Black families in terms of trying to raise teenagers who are teenagers also, right? And trying to like just be teenagers and manage all of the realities of being a teenager and then also have to manage the lens. And it's largely, you know, non-Black people around them that, you know, viewing them in ways that put them at tremendous risk and also don't take seriously how much they are going through things that may be very, very challenging because it's dismissed. Like, so for example, There are data showing um, that in some schools, Black girls are much more likely to be sexually harassed than white girls, but when they complain about it, they're more likely to be told it's their fault. You know, so, I mean, it's a whole horrible mire. And so 
I worked to lay those data out, lay out a bunch of references and resources for families of color that may be of use. I, I really feel, again, like back to that word humble, like I am a white mom raising white teenagers, but I can show the data and show the research that I think may be very illuminating. As for the question of suicidality, there's a really powerful thing that unfolded in recent years that showcases how much we get it wrong in psychology. So one of the things we've consistently done in academic psychology is we take a sample, we study a group, and then we decide whatever those findings are, they probably apply to everyone. Okay, it doesn't matter if that group is in no way representative of a wide range of racial or ethnic backgrounds, we sort of genericize whatever the findings are. So we have done this for years and years around the precursors to suicide in teenagers. We have looked very, you know, kind of done a lot of research on like, what are the warning signs of suicide in teenagers? And we hadn't really noticed, I'm embarrassed about this. It's not my area of research, but it's something that we do consistently as psychologists, that most of the teenagers we were looking at were white. Mm. We were doing that research. And the thing that brought it to our attention is that in um, recent years, as we've looked at the changing rates of suicide among adolescents, what we saw was that there was a group that stood out as having a much faster increase in their rate, and it was Black teenagers. Mm. So then, as we should, but wait, you know, too little, too late, we're like, wait, what's up with Black teenagers? What is it that makes them more at risk for suicide? Then we go back to the data sets we have, and we're like, oh, we don't know, because we haven't been asking Black teenagers. I mean, so it's really the... This story is a terrible story. We do have new data. There's been an effort to really fast track a much more earnest look at a more complete look at the precursors of suicide in Black adolescents. And what we're seeing is they do have different risk factors. Now, their risk factors, and I will tell you what they are, mostly just skywrite, you know, kind of systemic racism. I mean, like they just do. Yeah. So the kinds of things that they're more likely to have had a suicide attempt in advance, but they are less likely to have been diagnosed with a mental health disorder. Okay, that doesn't actually tell us much besides the fact that we don't take good care of these kids and we yeah. don't give them good access to care. So those were some of the key factors, more around like an immediate crisis, which seems to be a, a more likely precursor than it may be for other racial or ethnic groups. So we're just getting our hands around this, to be honest. Like, I don't want to oversell like we now understand suicide in Black adolescents because we don't. But what I do want to say is we have to really look carefully at everything we think we know and make sure that we just don't know it about the dominant group in the culture and then generalize it to everyone else because we do that and we've done that and it can have really, really dangerous implications. I look forward to more information on this as it evolves. And, you know, it's another reason why systemic racism is not just about racism. It's about so much more. It's really about the health and safety of children in this country. So we are wise not to dismiss it as a compartmentalized separate issue, but it is so runs so deep. Lisa, you tackle such hard stuff in this book with your graciousness and calm. And if I could pronounce the word equanimity, I would, but I think I pronounced it wrong always. We hope people will dive into this. There's so much good data. There's so much good research in there. I feel like I got a whole education just reading this book. So thank you for giving us all a deeper, better understanding of what's going on and making us feel like even with these really tough subjects that we can 
get a little smarter and a little stronger in helping kids manage it. So thank you. Thank you. That is really kind. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.